0: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome
1: to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, folks. This is Rob Wolf, your friendly neighborhood podcast host with the wait, I thought we were a glamping edition of New Books in Science Fiction, the podcast where we have fun talking about upbeat things like climate collapse and overpopulation and man's inhumanity to man, which is a bit of what we're going to talk about today, but we're also going to talk about parental love, the wonders of nature, and I'm sure lots of other things. I am delighted today to welcome Diane Cook to the show to talk about her new book, The New Wilderness, which made the Booker Prize long list this year. So congratulations, Diane. And Diane is on the line with me from Michigan right now. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here.
2: I know that you like to spend a lot of time in the wilderness. That's what your biography said. And in fact, you wrote some of the new wilderness in the high desert of Oregon while trekking on public lands. And yet in your bio, you say you've always been rooted in cities, and I know you're you call Brooklyn home right now, although you're not there at the moment. And you also put in your bio that you're easily spooked by being alone (laughs) in wild places. So how do you fit all those things into one person?
3: That's a good question. I think weirdly very easily because I think I'm drawn to the things that also scare me a little bit. So it makes sense that i'm looking for something that's not as comfortable as the thing i'm used to so the the life i've always lived has been in cities or like the suburbs immediately around cities where cities have been like a part of our life and i've always thought well there's got to be more beyond this there's got to be something else and that something else is going to be what really attracts me or gets my imagination going and that turned out to be true. Um, Being in empty places just fascinates me. I think there's something about the expansiveness of those of lands that are empty that make my imagination feel a lot freer than than it usually does in a city.
2: The New Wilderness is about a group of people, the community, who've been allowed to live in I guess, kind of one of the open spaces, a sort of open space, like what you're talking about. But in their case, it's really the last wilderness, and they're allowed to go there as a kind of experiment. And the story centers around one family, a mother bee, her daughter Agnes, and Agnes's father, although I guess I should say stepfather, Glenn. And I thought maybe we could just start there. Maybe you could explain what the community is, how it got to this wilderness and what's the experiment that they're participating in
3: Yeah so the the wilderness state is this last wilderness in the US this is you know obviously it's a speculative novel looking ahead and imagining that there's just one wilderness area left and all the other land in the US is is spoken for in whatever capacity you can imagine like whether it's farming or mining or part you know part of this Ever-expanding metropolis city where everyone lives. And the reason that these 20 people end up in the wilderness state is under this idea of that they're taking part of in an experiment. And the experiment, it's a hazy kind of experiment, but the experiment has always been explained to them as a thing that is trying to gauge whether people and nature can interact anymore without one destroying the other. And because like that idea that people and are in nature or people belong in nature or people can survive in nature has been like completely lost to history. It's been so long since people spent any time in nature at all. So it's basically a study, but the study takes a backseat to the story of the community um, in the novel and the community are these randomly chosen 20 people and they're they're not even chosen necessarily they're all volunteers it's like a kind of study where nobody really wanted to take part in it because it seemed really hard (laughs) because it was really hard and these 20 people were self-selected for various reasons they all know why they wanted to go to this place But it's not like the rest of the world understands why they would want to do a thing like this. Um, So it's a self-selected group. They operate a lot like the office where you might work or some board that you're on or some committee that you're on where some people you can tolerate, others you can't. So they're all together and they wander around the wilderness area and basically try and live as best they can with each other and within nature. And B and Agnes are the main, the main focus of the book. Um, it's a mother and daughter, like you said. And they've come to the wilderness area because Agnes is really sick. The city, the smog in the city makes it hard for kids especially. And she really doesn't have much time left before she succumbs to illness. And B knows this, and B sees this opportunity, this study, as a way to get her out of the city at great cost to both of them. Um, It's not an easy decision, but it's the only decision that will ensure that she has a fighting chance.
2: Yeah, I want I want to talk a little more about B and Agnes, but before we do, I thought maybe we could talk just a little bit more about. The way the community has to live and one thing I found intriguing was that they have this thing they call the manual and it kind of serves as this this rigid it's this rigid set of rules that they also keep kind of ignoring but then they'll go back to it sometimes or sometimes the Rangers who show up at random times and are supposedly enforcing the rules of the manual and protecting the wilderness and I suppose playing a role in conducting the experiment. They'll show up and make them follow the rules. And there's kind of this push-pull with these rules. They're very rigid rules. I mean, they, they are supposed to pick up every last scrap of garbage. They're not supposed to leave a trace at all of, of their presence. And so one of the rules is they can only stay in one place for seven days, technically, but they, they hardly ever follow that rule because it's so impractical and when they leave a place they have to do micro trash sweeps to get every last drop i mean it's really it's really intense and one thing that struck me was that it kind of goes counter to the flow of nature i mean you know if you're in the wilderness and you find a place say where food is abundant well historically i think man has settled there and said hey this place works for us let's stay here for a while until the food runs out but The manual is dictating that you can't do that we don't want you to the food to run out and so it's sort of almost saying try to survive in the wilderness but don't follow the rules of the wilderness don't don't dominate in any way it's almost like nature let nature be the dominant one and not man which is very counter to history anyway that's a lot of different ideas i guess but i felt like it was kind of embodied in the manual and their relationship to the manual
3: yeah those are great ideas, and it's a lot of what I was thinking about. I mean, I've you know spent a lot of time hiking um, and like leading groups of students out into the woods, and every time I go to any kind of you know national forest or state forest or anywhere where we're spending the night in the woods, there are a lot of rules to follow, and they're there for a reason. Counterintuitively, they're there to protect this thing that otherwise seems wild. Like it's, it's, I think it's, would the word be oxymoronic? I don't know. I, I forget what, the what mm-hmm. the, uh, definition of that word is or how to use it correctly, but there's like a real tension. There's a real tension between the idea that they're sent to this place to kind of devolve back into something natural and yet the only way that they're allowed to stay is by following all these rigids rigid rules. And I think that that is something that I'm kind of playing with in the whole spectrum of what it means to be human versus what it means to be animal or more, you know, of a more natural state. We're pushed toward this more civilized end of a spectrum by the rules that we make and, we can't be trusted to engage or interact with the world around us without this rigid set of rules, like keeping us, keeping us in check. And yeah, they were just, the tension was something that I found really interesting and it made a lot of sense to me both in its absurdity. Like it's almost like Kafka esque absurdity, but also in, in that, that is actually how we interact with wilderness areas. A lot of those rules, those rigid rules, are actually just rules like you could pull out of any wilderness guide. You know, like, leave no trace. You're supposed to pick up after yourself. And the rule for the community in the book is just like a it's not even that extreme of a version of it. It's like micro trash is a thing and you're supposed to pick it up (laughs) and you're supposed to only camp certain amount, you know, a certain distance from water. And I know that there are rules of how long you can stay in one place when you're backcountry camping. I don't know what the, the timeline is. I made up my own timeline, but these are my rules in the manual, the rules of the novel. I mean, the rules of the novel And the rules of the manual are just kind of a heightened and maybe not even so heightened version of the rules that already exist for people when they're engaging with the natural world in a place like the United States. And I'll just add, like, it isn't even a commentary on it that I think it's, you know, a negative, like it's just an essential set of rules because humans are so unruly, (laughs) you know, like we have, we're all so individualistic that we need a lot more guidance than, you know, when we're set out into places that aren't used to uh, supporting our presence.
2: Well, I guess the course of human civilization is to just kind of take over the wilderness, just like the book says, and the only way to stop it is to impose rules. I mean, you're making me think that the manual is also a metaphor for the rules of the EPA and the rules of any agency that's saying you can't dump, you can't pollute here and you got to keep this clean. And because if we don't, it ends up getting ruined.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting mess of a reality that we need all these rules to behave and to not destroy what's around us. And the rules sometimes feel burdensome or even unfair, but they also are totally necessary. I mean, in my mind, and I just, I liked playing around with, I'm very interested in rules, like in, in all of my writing, even outside of this novel, I'm very interested in rules and how people either accept or reject them. So it was inevitable to me that I would have a manual in my novel and that people would be the characters would constantly be kind of in conversation with this, this text of rules that seems absurd, but is actually the only thing keeping the community from not, like, basically building a town and, and planting a garden.
2: Another interesting thing is that the 20 members of the community, the initial 20 members, uh, my sense is they just kind of got thrown into the wilderness. So on the one hand, they have this manual of rules, but they didn't really have any particular training or preparation like how to start a fire by rubbing two sticks together or how to make this or that. They all kind of came more or less from the city with their kind of urban understanding and they just kind of had to figure it out. I mean, people come in even without the proper clothes. Some buy the L.L. Bean-esque proper boots, but it seems like other people just came with the clothes on their back and more or less, and they just kind of have to sink or swim.
3: Yeah. There's like a, a couple of different ways. Um, the original group, um, there's like a reference to some kind of intake that they did, but yeah, like I think the, I always imagined that the people who came wanted to be there and so did the kind of research that they felt they needed to do, but it, it was all kind of self-starting. It wasn't, there wasn't this like big orientation where they got all of the skills that they needed, there's kind of this unspoken rule. I mean, maybe un- maybe unspoken within the novel, but a rule that I-, I knew existed among the rangers and the community. The rangers are like the, the kind of the enforcing group that the rangers don't help the community. Like there's this idea, almost like you might see in a a reality show, that they, they don't get involved or interfere because that would that would undermine the experiment itself. So they have to come and they have to figure it out on their own, out of kind of a a moment of necessity. And sometimes they don't figure it out. And the group of 20 does not stay a group of 20 for long.
2: No. And that's another uh, interesting thing is that in some ways they get hardened rather quickly, it seems to me, or at least some of them do. I mean, when when one character dies suddenly as they're trying to cross a river, B gets very impatient with people having almost any feeling about it. Like, okay, come on, you know, let's stop talking about her, you know? And then, I mean, the r- arranger says to her something like, you know, when she has to report updates when they check in, something like she was very impatient and he sounds sad. And he goes, well, when did this happen? Well, yesterday. It's like, well, uh... Uh, just yesterday? (laughs) Like, and you already are, you want to move on? So that's also obviously perhaps a defense and a coping mechanism, maybe showing actually a depth of feeling she doesn't want to deal with. But, But it's certainly interesting what the environment and being in the wilderness does to the individuals.
1: slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, and and it you can see a lot of what who the individuals are. Um B is a particular kind of person and she's a little more prickly than uh than the rest and a little more impatient and there's uh, there are some things that she has a lot of time for and a lot of capacity to feel things about, and there are some things that she does not. But beyond her own particular sense of self and sense of community is this idea that the longer they're there and the more that they see and the more uh, loss they experience and the farther they get from what's normal in a society, the less time they have for the what's the word I'm looking for the theater of grief I guess a a showing a demonstration of their feeling and it's more like there's not a lot of space and time for that kind of thing when every day you're just surviving I wanted to make things a little more extreme than they might be in a real situation in this book, because I think like you pointed out earlier, a good place for a group of people to stop or a place with a lot of food or a good opportunity for safe survival, you would just stop and be there. So that would be a natural thing to do, but there's something not natural about the way they're having to live. And I wanted that to kind of infiltrate, into every part of them. So they w- would learn that they would need to deal with grief a little differently uh, in the wilderness, but it ends up looking something like this, where it almost feels a little heartless. And there, there's a passage um, in another section where they talk about that evolution, how they came to be people who felt righteously, Indignant when they see a group like a, a deer herd reject a, a baby, you know, like a fawn and not take care of the fawn after its mother has died or abandons it. And the fawn itself dies. And they're so angry because it's early on and they still have this sense of humanity about them. And then as time goes on and they experience more and more loss they start to see that example as being a little different. And I just liked playing with their changing grasp on what the right and wrong ways to behave would be the longer they stayed in this place.
2: Well, let's talk about what happens with B and Agnes a little bit. I mean, they are the main characters in the heart of the book and I suppose they have as complicated a relationship as maybe any mother and daughter mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so Agnes as you said was dying because of the pollution in the city and that's why B wanted to bring her to the wilderness and you can tell that Agnes is the most important thing to be, and yet I think like a lot of parents you know B also experiences moments of ambivalence in prioritizing Agnes's life, she has to deprioritize her own at times. And initially, she resents having to leave the city, but she still does it. So there's this tension, I guess, that you're always feeling. That ultimately, uh, B is trying and always basically doing right by Agnes in some fundamental way, but Agnes doesn't experience it that way, and as children often don't, and do- doesn't always see the extent to which B is making sacrifices, and it's not always clear, you know. I mean, it's kind of like a, a tough love sometimes. That's what it feels like. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your vision of their relationship and how how maybe it changes and evolves what this environment does to it that's, that's different than what might otherwise have happened, you know, if they had stayed in the city and I guess Agnes had lived.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you describe it really, really well, um, the kind of the natural state of their relationship. Um, And they're just, they're a mother and daughter. And I, I think partly in thinking about what their relationship would have been if she'd just stayed in the city and Agnes had, you know, somehow been okay, I'm not sure it would have been that different. I think their relationship would still have some of this tension. And I think that's partly what I wanted to play around with again like the the wilderness state is this very extreme place and this very extreme situation and so it pushes everyone to a very extreme version of how they would just normally be anyway Um, I think B and Agnes would have the same kinds of misunderstandings and inabilities to communicate and the inabilities to kind of really understand where the other's coming from just like they do in the wild but the stakes would feel less you know the stakes would be softened um in the city and it would feel you know like maybe my relationship with my mom felt which we had a fine relationship we had a good relationship even but i know that we both felt like we didn't totally get the other and so to put agnes and b into such an extreme situation i think it really blows up that problem that people have and i think mothers and daughters but also lots of people there are a couple of different instances in the book where you know someone says something about themselves and the you know the person were following the, you know, kind of the, it's told in third person, like close third person. The person that we're with at that time, whether it's B or Agnes, kind of makes a comment to themselves, like, oh, I didn't know that about that person. And these are people who've lived together in a very extreme situation for years at this point. But I think that there's just a way that that happens among people, whether it's daughters and mothers or just members of a group There's just things that we just don't or can't know about one another. And I wanted to have that be a real part of their lives.
2: Obviously, you've spent time in the wilderness and you've spent time alone in the wilderness. And I wonder how that has informed your appreciation of the dwindling nature in the United States and the world and how it informed the ideas for the novel. You know, I can't help but think, I don't know if you saw today, the pictures from San Francisco all day. The sky was completely orange all day. Yeah. From the fires.
3: And parts of Oregon where I spent time. It's just awful. Yeah. I mean, in, a, in another world, I would be a nature writer. It's just where I get my inspiration from. And I don't even have to be in the middle of nowhere. I can be like looking at a tree in the city. And I it gives me ideas. I read a lot of nonfiction about the natural world and it always gives me ideas, but I don't like write. I don't want to just be a nature writer. Like I want to write fiction. I want to build worlds. I want to make shit up. So the landscapes, I, I want to like bring them into my fiction. And so it makes sense at least with this project to try and create a world where my characters didn't just like happen upon some natural settings and ponder them, you know, like where someone is in the middle of uh, some kind of drama that doesn't have anything to do with trees, but then they look at a tree and they have a thought, you know, I didn't want to write that kind of fiction. I wanted to write fiction where people couldn't get away from nature, where nature was as much a character as, the characters who were driving the novel. And all of that gives me an excuse to just go spend a lot of time in these places that I love to be um, or to go wandering around and trying to find things that inspire me or things I've never seen before, things that seem strange and alien to me because I grew up in the Midwest. Being out in the high desert. The high desert wasn't even the kind of landscape that I imagined when I first had the idea for the book. Um, I'd never seen a landscape like it. But once I was there, I knew that I had to spend, I knew that I wanted to spend years just thinking about how to get the landscape down on the page.
2: And do you see yourself as someone who will continue to write this kind of speculative fiction or, I mean, you know, this podcast is called New Books and Science Fiction, but that encompasses a lot of different things, including, I think, your book. But do you, what's your view of yourself as a writer in terms of what you see yourself writing more of in the future? I do know, I haven't read your short stories, but your prior book was a collection of short stories. It was called Man v. Nature. Is that correct?
3: Yes. Yeah.
2: My understanding of what I read about it was that there are a lot of nature stories, but I didn't no if it if they were necessarily speculative stories,
3: yeah, some speculative or apocalyptic some have a kind of fabulous turn to them, so it's just like a little bit of magical realism in them so yeah, I think most people would use like dystopian apocalyptic surreal to describe some of the stories. And yeah, I don't even always know the difference between all of these terms. Dystopian and speculative often seem like they have to be the same thing, at least these days. I mean, I I think that I won't be happy writing about our world as it exists now in our current time. I just think that I'm not built to do that. I like world building and in any fiction you write, even if it's auto fiction about right now, there's you know, there's world building to be done. But I like really building my worlds. I like making them from the ground up. I think it's an exciting way to write. I think it's so it it makes me so energized and excited to do that kind of work over just kind of trying to capture my, you know, the world around me in some way that feels realist. So I can't imagine I won't be doing some kind of speculative writing or, or, you know, as, as with the short stories, some kind of writing where it takes a fantastical or fabulous turn at some point. I like writing about ideas and I think that changing the world and building a new world and activating characters within that world, it just lends, lends itself to exploring ideas better. I don't know if that makes sense or if that's something that you found. It just clears the way of all the detritus of, of what, is in our lives every day. And it lets us see things on a kind of not a clean slate, but a new slate. And so we're just able to pay attention to the ideas more. And I just find that much more exciting to work in.
2: Yeah, I can even relate to that myself. And I think writing about a speculative future, near future, far future. It always ends up reflecting back on how we live today anyway, but I find it a great way to do that rather than literally writing about the now, but sort of speculating about, you know, the next steps from now and what might happen and what could happen. I have one other question, and it's about the title, actually, and why you decided to call it The New Wilderness, rather than just say, the wilderness, you know, in a way, in a sense, the wilderness is the oldest thing in this world. And it isn't actually new. But I can imagine lots of ways to think of why it was new to these people in the in the story. But what what was your thinking behind the title?
3: I mean, I had lots of thoughts. And there were other titles you know, working titles at different points. Like at one point it was called the wilderness state and another point it was called way back when a totally different, you know, idea was kind of the, the main engine for the, for the premise. It was called the mitigation state, but the new wilderness, I think gave it a little more breadth. Um, It made it feel a little more expansive to me because I think Throughout the course of the book, there are new places that they encounter and new characters who become important to the plot and to the people in the book. There are a lot of changes that happen throughout the book. They go to a lot of places. Their realities change a lot throughout the book, I'm thinking especially of someone like Agnes. And... I really liked the idea that the wilderness, I mean, here, I'll, I'll start, I'll also say throughout the course of the book, and one of the big inspirations for the book is just the, the nature of wilderness itself as an idea, as a construct, and the idea that there could be a new wilderness or a new kind of wilderness or something that's a wilderness to one person and not to another, Uh, was really interesting to me and made a lot of sense to me. And by the end, there's an idea of wilderness that I think is very different than the idea of wilderness that the story begins in. And so it made sense to me that there was this progression and an evolution, not just in the people, but in, in the idea of this place itself. Plus, it sounds good, I think.
2: <laughs> it does. It sounds excellent. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Diane. I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you about The New Wilderness. And I, I I thank you so much for taking the time to be on New Books in Science Fiction.
3: Oh, thank you so much for asking me. I, I never imagined that this book would qualify as science fiction since it's all about it's like zero technology and people just wandering around with primitive tools, but I love the idea that it could be considered that.
2: Well, there are lots of futures that people have envisioned that that may very well be in our future. As I our-
3: know, yeah, I mean that—that's I mean that isn't exciting to me, but it's exciting that this book fits into that whole world. So thank you very much.
2: Well, you're welcome. I mean that's. Yes, not that I get to make that decision. Like I, yes, I bless your book as a science fiction book, but <laughs> yes, that is that's how that's how it seemed to me. And I love uh, the breadth and diversity of what science fiction can be, and that's why one of the many reasons I love doing the podcast, most of all, to speak to fascinating writers who have all kinds of interesting things to say, like like you did today.
3: Great. Well, thank you very much. I loved it. You have great
2: questions, so thank you so much. Thank you. I have been talking to Diane Cook about her novel, The New Wilderness, which came out in August from Harper. Thanks for listening to this episode of New Books in Science Fiction. Please subscribe and leave a review to show your support if you haven't done that already. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our lovely theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I edit each episode, but the show wouldn't get to you without the incredible New Books Network and its endlessly innovative founder and editor Marshall Poe and his dedicated co-editor Leanne Wilson. I'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Until then, I really hope the air is fresh where you are, and I do hope you wear a mask when you're around others. Bye for now.